Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that Henrietta Swan Leavitt, or Levitt, was born 150 years ago on July 4th, and she mapped the stars at the Harvard Observatory. And at the time, she used the most advanced photographic and spectroscopic methods she could find, and she figured out that you could measure the brightness of thousands of stars. And she noticed that the star's brightness varied on a regular schedule depending on just their intrinsic brightness, and she worked out something called period-luminosity relationship in 1908, which gave astronomers a powerful tool to measure the distance to stars and other astronomical objects. And her work, this is someone you've probably never heard of, made most of the 20th century's most dramatic understandings of what's happening in space possible, which is really amazing. I didn't know until I was doing research for the show uh, that that kind of knowledge existed that long ago. So if you're thinking, wow, progress is really slow, well, you could say it's really slow. You could also say that was only 100 years ago out of the thousands of years we've been around. And you look at the speed of progress, it's only getting faster and we're able to do more now than we ever have in all of history. And just knowing this kind of stuff makes me happy. Hopefully it made you happy too. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest is Dawa Tarchin Phillips, who's a Santa Barbara, California-based mindfulness and meditation expert and author, entrepreneur, spiritual teacher, researcher, educator, and really fantastically interesting guy who's been written about in the New York Times and Men's Fitness and Forbes and places like that. He's, uh, he's American, but grew up across Europe, speaks English, German, French, and probably some other languages that I don't know about. He's interesting because he studied and trained as an ordained monk with a Vajrayana Buddhist meditation master. This is someone of the Tibetan lineage. And he completed two different three-year meditation retreats in France. And his Tibetan name actually means accomplished moon. So for 25 years, he's been a Dharma and meditation practitioner, which is a, a pretty serious spiritual path. What's cool, though, is that he's a non-sectarian Buddhist practitioner and an authorized teacher of the Kaju School of Tibetan Buddhism in the U.S. and abroad. And has taken his knowledge of what's going on inside our heads, inside our bodies, and turned it towards leadership. So he runs a leadership development company in Santa Barbara that does mindfulness-based leadership. What I've found in my own path of being Bulletproof CEO and before that is that the leaders who, who do the most good, 
who do the most amazing things are the ones who have the most mindfulness. So if you're an unmindful leader, you might be successful, but you'll be really unhappy, and so will all of the people at your company, and that totally sucks. So when I saw a chance to talk to you know a, a Buddhist monk who's teaching executives how to be better executives, I'm like, all right, we've got to get this guy on the show. So Dawa, welcome to Bulletproof Radio. Thank you, Dave. Good to be here. It's nice to nice to see you. I don't know if people will know that we're actually uh, meeting here on Oahu today. Yeah, there are worse places to conduct an interview. Uh, we're both here for Jack Canfield's a group called Transformational Leadership Council. So to get to look at each other eye to eye is particularly useful, and it usually makes for a really awesome interview. So it I'm, does. I'm pretty stoked. Now, it's hard to know where to start with you because you've done things like create the International Mindfulness Teacher Association where you're putting together these these groups of people who for long periods of time, but really the last 10 years, there's been an explosion of people working with mindfulness and awareness and the very soft skills of leadership that go way beyond like emotional intelligence and things like that. What led you to actually put together a band of teachers around this? Like, what's the point of doing that? Well, what's interesting, if you look at how uh, mindfulness and and really uh, transformational practices have entered our society, modern society, over the last 50 years, um, you, you see that there's a, a greater adoption due to the, the scientific inquiry and the, the evidence-based uh, practices that have been drawn out of these traditionally a little bit more, um, you can say, what, uh, you could say esoteric or woo woo, <laughs> esoteric woo woo or, or non mainstream, yeah. maybe educational paths, right? And, uh, that has made it accessible for many people to actually understand how these practices can affect their physiology, their mental function, their emotional function, and also their, their spiritual development in a non-theistic way, right? In an experiential way and can lead to greater happiness, but also better performance. And so all of that, that work that's happened has led to an explosive interest in these kinds of practices, mindfulness practices, uh, but also uh, manifestation practices, right? How can I create the life I want by, by using my skills of, of mind, of heart, and of action to actually transform my life. So that explosion has also led to more and more people seeking a kind of uh, professional activity in that area. And, and mindfulness is one of those areas. And we've seen, particularly over the last decade, an explosion in mindfulness teachers. And, and that has led to the need to have some professionalization. And the International Mindfulness Teachers Association is the first global body that uh, that allows mindfulness teachers to associate with each other, that allows people who run training programs to aim for a specific quality of teacher training so that uh, everyone knows that if you, if you entrust yourself to someone that has had uh, training recognized by a, a collaborative body such as the International Mindfulness Teachers Association, uh, you, you know you're in good hands yeah? because we we want to know that with our minds and with our hearts, we're in good hands. And that's sometimes difficult to make out. There's been an explosion of, uh, of these life coaches, uh, mm -hmm. oftentimes life coaches who haven't really lived a lot of their life yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. you sort of you know, take a, a two hour class and now you hang up a shingle and you know, I'm a life coach. Uh, but uh, putting some professionalism around it seems important because you can also have the potential for abuse where people either aren't qualified or, form 
really unhealthy attachments to their clients and, and things like that. How do you, how would someone listening to the show who's thinking about working with a mindfulness coach, like how do you sort out, okay, this is a qualified mindfulness coach uh, who's likely to lead me down a good path versus one who, with the best of intentions, might lead me down a path that I don't want to go down. Yes, the easiest way would be to go to uh, the website of the IMTA, imta.org. And there you can see both the, the pathways that training programs take to get an international accreditation and pathways that individual teachers and trainers and coaches take to become internationally certified. And it, it lines out some, some basic fields of knowledge and experience and skill that one should aim for cultivating in oneself. And the good thing is uh, with these practices is you're the first beneficiary. So by developing these skills, first the first life you're able to transform is your own. And and that then also brings you into a place where you know from first-hand experience what these practices do. And that's really what we want. We want people that uh, lead others uh, to and through places that they themselves have become familiar with through their practice. It, it sounds like I'm going to have to introduce you to a bunch of the Bulletproof Coach <laughs> people because we have a bunch of Bulletproof Coaches who, it's a similar thing, if you aren't walking the walk and, and you haven't at least walked it before, it's very hard to to work with someone. Uh, and I see a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs who are struggling, unhappy, they're making, they're running companies doing more than a million dollars a year in revenue and like, I, I should be happy, uh, but I, I, I kind of hate my life. In yes. fact, it's maybe more common than not. Yes. Uh, so someone like that sits down with a mindfulness teacher and starts their own process and actually has some level of attainment and, and starts have, having things happen. If you're working with someone who's teaching mindfulness but doesn't have an intrinsic understanding of those states, you might run into places where, like if your coach hasn't been there before, it, it's it's hard to know what to do. So I, I appreciate you kind of sharing sharing that tidbit give me the url one more time it was i imta.org imta.org so that's one place that you might want to go if you're listening and you're looking for a specific mindfulness coach there's a lot of online meditation training yes. uh, that i've i've seen i've had several experts come on the show and talk about that what's your take on using uh, an app or using uh an online online tools to meditate better is that effective i think it is we we know from from science that it can be effective okay. right so so it it always depends on uh, how someone is using the method uh, the the right method in the wrong hands can lead to bad outcomes and uh, a method regardless of how simple or simplified in the right hands can bring positive results and so yes i definitely believe and know that uh, not all but a portion of the existing mindfulness and meditation apps deliver uh, verifiable results and that's a good thing and i think we're in a time where we need to accelerate the rate at which people actually become more awake and uh, more in tune with their sense of uh, connection with each other and their also their their sense of uh, personal spiritual and social responsibility. Did you just say meditate faster? Did, did I no, I didn't say meditate faster. <laughs> I, I'd say accelerated, accelerated awakening. There you, know? there you go. How can we accelerate the process by which people actually uh, mature themselves? But what's the point of being awakened? The, the point is to be an integrated, uh, valuable member of society. Yeah, one, one that can be 
less uh, preoccupied with their own fight for survival, whether that is a, a interior mental and emotional fight for survival due to trauma, or it's an exterior fight for survival due to lack of uh, economic security or uh, social embeddedness. You know? and, and so as long as people are really struggling for survival, it's very difficult to to feel that sense of connection with others and to to make uh to 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 accept that uh, we might be better off together than alone uh, and so i think there's there's a benefit from this process of awakening for our society because everyone that becomes more integrated more grounded more more capable uh, will both feel a, a personal sense of empowerment um and also a, a greater desire to contribute and and i think that is the kind of society that we we desperately need and we long for i think also like us when we get together in these leadership meetings part of what makes it so valuable is how we are able to connect <laughs> it's kind of funny i think a lot of my leadership team at bulletproof has no clue why i go to <laughs> things like this but uh -huh. you put it very eloquently there where there's some value with connecting with other people who are working on similar skills because yeah. you learn and there's something some value of just being in a room with a bunch of people who who see things in a certain way because it soaks in, for lack of a better word. Yeah, and, and the ability to to solve problems together yeah. increases, the, the synergy, yeah? Mm -hmm. And I think human synergy, the ability to solve problems by by a collaboration and co-creation, we have barely tapped into it, and we're, we're coming up against challenges where we need to have that skill. And I think part of this process that, that we're training in, also you with your company and how you are uh, moving people along, is to, to get people to a place where, where they actually are uh, capable synergistic individuals that can help solve problems on a larger scale. How do you know if you're awakened? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I think you, you notice it, um, yeah, that's a good question. So I'd say you, you, you notice it by the amount of attachment you've transformed into love, I would say. Okay. If someone's listening to this going, all right, I'm pretty sure <laughs> and I have to say, I have to express that from a <laughs> spiritual teacher perspective. Otherwise I say, look at their EEG, you know, <laughs> there you if, go, the, right. if the personal opinion and the EEG don't match, you, you might have a bypasser. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, this actually gets into the, the leadership stuff. One of the things that, that you train in mm. leadership is the quality of your presence. Yes. And, and what I've learned is that Early in my career, I was pretty much running away from failure, and I was pretty angry most of the time. Uh -huh. So I could show up at a board meeting, and I knew the dance. Like, uh -huh. like I could say the right things, but inside, I'm like, I hope that person falls off a cliff. You know, like, yeah. like, like yeah. you're you're basically sending hateful thoughts into the room, and yeah. there's you know lots of fear and greed and and all that sort of stuff. And I didn't understand this because I I grew up with a very engineering focused kind of skeptical mindset. Yes, and people can tell, right? like, like how you tell, I have some theories about mitochondrial measuring of magnetic fields that are probably true, but even yeah. if they're not, the fact is, if someone walks into a room and what they're saying and doing doesn't match what they're feeling, yes. we know. Yes. And the quality of your presence goes up when what you're feeling inside matches what you say. Yes. So that's at least my definition of of the quality of presence because I know that I can I can go on stage with Tony Robbins and thousands of people, but if if I don't have whatever that weird alignment between what's going on in my gut and my heart and my words, it doesn't it doesn't stick. You know the yes. the audience doesn't it's it's like a firewall almost. How do you define 
presence for leaders, though. I mean, this is my experience of it, but what's your definition as a spiritual teacher? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question, Dave. So, first of all, the, the reason why we focus on presence is because uh, everything that lies in an individual's person's in an individual person's control boils down to five things. What they think, how they feel, what they imagine, what they say, and what they do. And those five things all happen in the present. And so someone who actually doesn't have present has lost all control over their life. They have no control over the direction of their life. And so we bring people back to the present because that is where the steering occurs. That is where actually control over the direction of one's life can be gained. And we have we developed an approach to leadership that is actually uh, allowing people, and particularly leaders, to understand that they are not in the business of creating a better future. They're in the business of upgrading the present, of learning how to transform the experience and the interaction and the outcomes that they're achieving in the present. Yeah, And, and uh, people intuitively know that what we're saying here is true because they have lived every moment of their life in the present and yet they get trapped in the attachment to past experiences which then projects itself into fear of the future. And so when we help them through mindfulness practices step out of that and then explain to them clearly the tools that they have available to transform their present moment experience and how that then becomes their leadership style that not only teaches their their uh, uh, constituency or their employees or their followers how to be more effective in, in living healthy, impactful, meaningful lives, uh, then that becomes for the leader very satisfying. Yeah? Because they feel more in the driver's seat of their own right. life. And they, they know now how to introduce the ones that they care for and are responsible for to actually a model that works. So you asked me how I define presence, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's hard to define. Yeah. yeah, I'd say the the ability of a person to to remain uh, in in I'd, I'd call it real time, uh, and and to have full access to their resources in real time. I I came across a, a story once. Uh, I'm not sure which meditation teaching this was, but they they were looking at meditation or uh, basically spiritual guru level people. <laughs> uh huh. And they'd sit them in a room, and they'd have the lights blink really briefly. Uh -huh. And they'd say, what did you experience? And they'd say, well, the lights were on, the lights were off, lights were on. And they'd take someone who didn't have as much presence, you know, someone who was, was untrained, and they'd say, the lights were on. But they're not even perceiving the blink because uh -huh. they're kind of living in a, in a mush of, of some of the present, some of the past, and maybe some of the future. Yes. But they're not actually perceiving all of the things happening in the world around them. Yes. Uh, is that kind of an accurate picture? It, it, I mean, do you see the lights blink when other people don't? Or, or how do you know you're in the present? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know because there's nothing else you have to hold on to. Yeah. Okay. You, you, you realize that you're in, in the present because you feel groundless, but also tapped in and connected. Yeah. So, and uh, we, we notice that the, all the things that we hold on to that are so, so, uh, become so much part of our egoic identity are things that we accomplished in the past or that we hope to accomplish in the future, right? But when we become really present, the things that we can really grasp onto are less and less. What we, what we remain with is this sense of open-mindedness and open-heartedness. Our intentions and our willingness to engage in the situation we're in 
in the most effective way we know how. So there's a certain groundlessness that comes with presence. And, and I think most people that have developed a, a meditation practice, they've become familiar with it, right? So in, in our approach, we, we tell people there, there are three practices you are involved in. You're involved in, in familiarizing yourself with something, cultivating something, and then learning how to gain a sense of direction. So when we say familiarization is uh, what is actually happening and how does that become something you don't run away from, but you become actually more intimate with and more familiar with. Then among the things that are happening, which are the things you want to cultivate and why? No? And particularly in a role of a CEO or, or a leader, uh, those those have to be things that actually align themselves with the, the vision, the mission, and and. Uh, the purpose of your organization. And then the the direction is being really clear on, on where the dials are, what you actually can control and how and what you can't, so that you reduce your uh, energy waste and, and you, you maximize efficiencies. Yeah? And I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the work you guys are doing with the biohacking and, and the, the, the neurohacking because I think it's all about it, developing a sense of efficiency with one's energy and, and really focusing it on those uh, le levers that we have actually available to us to transform the world and our life. So when you're more present, you're more efficient because you know what's going on and you're less reactive to things that aren't happening that your nervous system might be worried about is happening. Yeah. Okay. And and you use you use the things you can actually influence and you waste less time on the things that you actually can't. Here's an interesting question for you. <laughs> uh, we're both in Hawaii. I was here in Hawaii when the fake missile alert went off. Yes. And I will say I didn't lose any sleep over it. That's probably because I was still sleep, asleep when it happened. But I, I, I know what my reaction to that w would be, which is a very not, not a very strong reaction. Um, just because partly I'm an engineer and also the things you can change. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but line, if there's really a missile flying towards you that that's nuclear, you're probably screwed. So you might as well enjoy the you know, enjoy the ocean and you yes. know like, like there's nothing to be done there. Yes, um, you know, have your family know you love them. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Right. Uh, versus you know there there were people who reacted in all sorts of different ways. And what would someone who practices presence and uh, this awakening you're talking about? How would they typically respond? Uh, to an event like that that's mostly out of their control versus someone who hasn't who doesn't have a practice like this like talk to me about like the level of suffering or just the, the mindset that yeah, would come with so, that so so with with the mind with mindful leadership you tend to go less into anxiety and worry and the stress response and you 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 tend to stay more in an area where you actually have a clarity and access to your inner resources and outer resources and you can have discernment and you can make decisions among the choices that are available, which is the, really the ideal state. Right. Yeah? The ideal state is full access to your resources, discernment, and uh, cl uh, clarity about the options. Right. And so that is really what we cultivate, that state. And, uh, and when we do get into a state of fight or flight, freeze or faint, how can we, how can we reduce that state either through investing, uh, remedies, uh, practicing certain practices, or also investing trust, an important aspect of mindfulness practice that oftentimes is, is left out, this active cultivation of, of trust into one's own experience. How do we deal with, with trust? Because there are people who are not trustworthy. 
I mean, there are people who will you know meet with you and you know steal your ideas or try and steal your money or put together a bad partnership or uh, you know just aren't aren't worth that. So yes. on one hand, okay, I, I meditate, I'm working on awakening, so I'm more trusting. Right. Uh, how do you keep that from turning into you're easy to be taken advantage of or naivete? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's a great question, and I get that often. And uh, partly is the relationship with trust is one that oftentimes uh, people have not examined uh, very carefully, which means that we experience our trust level as a reaction to our environment. And so we put other people in charge of our trust levels. And when we do that, our trust levels remain low and oftentimes don't contribute to our well-being and success, but undermine it. So it, there's an important process by which we release others from that responsibility. And, and we understand that we have the ability to generate trust to the level we wish to. And that when it gets hurt, harmed, or broken, we can rebuild it to the level at which we experience uh, healing or redemption or, or some sense of forgiveness and wholeness again, independently of what others are doing, right? So, so that... Uh, that that skill is very important because if we will, if we live in this idea that somehow uh, others will become so stable or clear or ethical or predictable that we can trust uh, deeper, then uh, we're in a state of de dependency on others' development, right? and and it's frustrating because others are never quite reliable enough or predictable enough. <laughs> Uh, to warrant that level of trust, right? And and never mind the world, which is changing so fast and and so drastically, and has uh, natural disasters and socioeconomic crises, right? So this this aspect of trust is really understanding that trust is good for you. Basically, it's just it's good for me to be in a state of trust, and I develop it because it uh, it balances my autonomic nervous system. It frees me from uh, negative projections based on past experiences and negative expectancy. And it puts me back into that open present state where I have access to my resources, which is where I want to be. Huh? So it doesn't mean I give up discernment. It doesn't mean that in order to have trust, I need to abandon discernment. And I think that's the, the either or duality that many of us grew up with where we say, okay, I'm either in a state of trust or I'm critically discerning. Yeah? When when I and, and my team, we say, no, it's, we really want to try to cultivate both. A, a state of enhanced trust so that we're balanced, we're, we're happy, we're open, and an increased sense of discernment. Tell me about a time that someone violated your trust as a, you know, as a, a monk. <laughs> yeah. What happened internally and externally with you? Well, so I guess that the violations that, that I've experienced in the past, you know, uh, I went through 12 years of monastic training. I'm not a monk now. I'm married yeah. and have a family. But at the time, spiritual teachers are not infallible. And we live in a time where a lot of false idols are coming down and a lot of sacred cows are being slaughtered. And that's, that's a good thing. I think we're disrupting the whole idea that wisdom is a hierarchical, hierarchical, uh, essence when in fact it's distributed right mm -hmm. can come from anyone anytime and i'm a big fan of peer-to-peer -peer awakening right what i have experienced as well in my life is uh, teachers who were not what they said or made out or presented themselves to be that's a big betrayal right 
big betrayal, na? Uh, who weren't keeping their commitments, who uh, made false statements about uh, how they, wh- what they were doing and who they were and where, who they presented themselves to be in public was not who they were in private. Right? And from those betrayals, uh, the, the way back really was about uh, understanding the, the role of a teacher in one's life and also understanding where, in fact, my pers- where, where my personal responsibility for my own growth and education and wisdom lies, right? And yeah. and how to not abdicate that, how to not abandon that in the process. I think many of us, maybe partly through the educational system we go through, we, we abandon so much of our own wisdom and so much of our own sense of empowerment. And it becomes painful when we when we realize that we did that, right? That even though uh, many times we, we knew we knew something better than the person in the front of the room, uh, or we, we actually had a, a sense of a, a different truth than what was written in the book, we, we still were uh, stuck in that power differential of that authority figure. And, and I think that the lessons that I learned is how to, to really trust my own wisdom and, and to know that ultimately, you know, being at peace with myself, the decisions I make and the guidance I receive from my own heart and mind uh, is really part, the, the journey. Yeah? I don't know if that makes sense to, to your question. It, it, does make, it does make sense there. And one of the things that you can always do, in fact, something that, that I teach when I'm working with executives is around uh, finding gratitude. So yeah. there's something that you learned from that situation, even if it really sucked, even if it yeah. was painful. And then if you can't find that, or if you just don't know how to do that, or you don't take, you don't do the work to find something to be grateful for, it becomes very hard to to let it go and, and sort of see it for what it is versus mm-hmm. what it feels like. Mm-hmm. One of the practices that I, I used to do, I can't say I do it every day, but I did for a long time, was uh, when I was meditating, I would just say, look, I'm, I'm grateful that things happen the way they're supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, as a Western engineering guy, like there's all sorts of questions about you know, philosophy, about fate, is everything predetermined? Like, like that could be a really ugly statement. Mm-hmm. And what I came down to uh, over the years was that my nervous system is frighteningly stupid and will mm-hmm. believe almost anything I tell it. Mm-hmm. So I say that because rationally I, I know things might not happen the way at least that I think they're supposed to happen. But mm-hmm. as long as my nervous system thinks things happen the way they're mm-hmm. supposed to happen, it chills out, yes. which allows me to be more present, make better decisions and you know, be a more effective leader and things yes. like that. So I look at this almost like there's a separate consciousness uh, that's in the body that's yes. looking at all this crap. Uh, and that if you can get that to believe that it's trusting, that that frees up a lot of the noise that yes. then allows me to decide whether, okay, I am going to choose to take action like I'm trusting, but yes. just getting rid of the fear that comes from just assuming that, even though rationally I know that might not be true. Yes. Is that a good practice or does that have a downside I don't know about? I think it's a good practice. I think the body is mainly in a survival state uh, naturally because it's, it only has one mission, that is to survive and replicate. Right. Uh, that is very different than the, the the mind's or the spirit's mission, yeah. Because the mind or the spirit knows that it it is not going to survive physically. It knows that, right? And and yet the body is is 
primed, its primary conditioning is around that. And I think the, the the spiritual path, at least the way I understand it, and I've I've done a lot of work in neuroscience, I founded a research center in Santa Barbara and other things, is that how do we get how do we get the the reality of our body and the the wisdom of our mind to actually work together in a yeah. way that uh, is integrated? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm not a big fan of the enlightenment that tries to achieve some kind of state that is uh, non embodied, you know. Uh, some imagined alternative reality. I, I, I think that well, they have drugs for that, right? Yeah, they have drugs for <laughs> that, and 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 people lose decades pursuing yeah. this, right? And then then and then they die, and they never were really here, right? Right. So uh, I, I I think that what we want to have is a, a, a state where we can influence the the well being of our body through our mind, and we can influence the well being of our mind through our body. Is there a danger uh, to some meditation practices? Uh, and I'm asking this because when I was uh, studying uh, Buddhism in Nepal at a, at a Tibetan monastery uh, years ago, uh, they talked about the there's a fast path to enlightenment. Like, but people go crazy along the way. So, like, you might be able to get enlightened in one lifetime, but you might also end up, you know, in a padded cell. And there's various other people out there who talk about you know unstable personalities meditating and becoming more unstable. What are the downsides to embarking on a practice like the one that you went down? Yeah, and I use the word enlightenment very, very rarely. Yeah. Uh, I think I like the word awakening sure. um, because people people can make sense of living a life where they're more awake. Yeah. Um, I think that the downside is to not actually uh, to 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 not know whether the uh, the real traps are. Yeah, and there are there are traps along the path of awakening um, and where, where people can get off the path and then really lose a decade or two pursuing things that ultimately don't bring much benefit. And then I think uh, the other downside is when, when, the, when a breakthrough occurs, to not have any, in, any mentors or friends that can help with the integration of that paradigm shift. And so I, th I believe it's very important to, to have spiritual friends, uh, whether they are childhood friends or they are colleagues or spouses or, or even children, but people that you choose because you have things in, in common and, and you, you uh, pursue a path together and you uh, are interested in each other's ex experience because I think that there's a wisdom of the group that helps with the integration of such breakthroughs. And I think when people isolate themselves on the, on the spiritual path and don't share their experience and use their experience as a way of escapism, then yeah, there can be serious downsides from all the way from mental illness to physical uh, harm to their physical health and certainly huge harm to their, their social system uh, where, where people uh, you know, abandon their their families um, or uh, entertain very wrong ideas about what an awakened life actually would could and or would look like in the modern world there's a, a trap that people fall into behaviorally not just around meditation it can be around exercise you can be around diet uh, it can be around meditation almost anything where you embark on a path and it makes a difference so therefore more of that path 
kind of relentlessly because it's already past your filters as something that clearly works. Yes. And this happened to me when I was a raw vegan. Yes. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, I'm feeling really good, right? And after three months, I wasn't quite feeling as good, but I knew that the vegan diet really worked for me. Yes. And I went on to the point I'd like shattered a tooth and like introduced some autoimmune problems. And one day I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to eat some meat, right? And and that really was kind of a transformative thing, but I was so convinced and committed. All right, I've, I figured this out. You know, this is really good. And I've, I've seen the same thing happen with, you know, meditation practice. You, you do it the certain way uh, as long as it works. Yes. But that willingness to be able to say, I'm going to, to shift what I do uh, um, based on the current state of things, which goes back to what you mentioned around awareness and, and yes. just how am I doing right now? Yes. And if I did this meditation every day for 10 days and things are crappy and it's not working anymore, that's why you have those friends you just talked about Yes, uh, where you talk to them about it and maybe you do it more or maybe you make a shift. But if you're doing it in isolation, uh, it, it might be really hard to do. Yes. But on the flip side, if you do it in a group setting and everyone in the group encourages you and says, it's the, oh, no, no, this works. You got to keep doing it. You got to keep yes. doing it. It's not working for you. How do you solve that as, you know, yes. as, as a person navigating their way through? almost an infinite number of meditation and spiritual practices, yes. not to mention diet, exercise, all the other <laughs> lifestyle stuff. Yes. But like, like how, how do you navigate that, that ability to say, all right, I'm going to change my path a little bit or a lot? Well, it brings up two things because we, you and I, we share an interest in neurofeedback as well, right? And so uh, the, I am very interested, and others as well, in, in finding ways uh, <coughs> in which we can integrate the body's wisdom into this process because the body doesn't lie. It has right. no incentive right. uh, to tell a story. If it is contracted and ill and not well, it will let you know. Um, and so any, anything that allows us to, to, to get uh, data from the body as to how it is, it is doing, uh, given the, the, the mind that is entertained by the inhabiting person, I think that's very, very valuable. Um, I think also that there are paradoxes in, in awakening. Um, where two seemingly opposing things can actually be true at the same time. And, and those things sometimes the, the intellect struggles with, right? The intellect struggles with the fact that we need both relationship and alone time. Um, and in, in our partnerships, when we try to communicate that, uh, we get very mixed messages from each other, right? When we say, I need some alone time, people may feel rejected when we constantly engage in in relationship we may feel like we're letting ourselves down yeah but it's it's a constant dance to integrate these paradoxes and part of what for example has evolved in the in the tradition of zen is sitting with the paradox until the paradox resolves in a larger truth yeah? and and i think that is uh part of an authentic meditation practice is the, the willingness to be with a paradox until the paradox dissolves into a larger experience of a reality in which these seemingly opposing realities can actually be simultaneously present. I don't know if that makes sense it, the way it does, I explained it. It does make sense. And, and one of the challenges of all of the meditation and spiritual paths is that a lot of what we're talking about is it's one of my favorite words. It's ineffable, uh, which basically means that there aren't words to describe it. 
and, and that's why all of the teachings imagine a flower you know a, a golden <laughs> yeah. you know the, the, the buddha sitting on a on a gray stone that looks like it. and what they're trying to do is, is paint an inside neurological state that Correct. doesn't have words for it Correct. Uh, like telling a colorblind person it's red but like what's red you, you just don't know uh, so I, I think it does make sense. It's an, an eloquent way of explaining something that's hard to explain. And, and the ability to sit with a paradox really pisses off engineers uh, and scientists. And you know that that's where I come from. And it took me a lot of work to be able to just sit down and say, you know what? Half my brain is completely irrational and half my brain is entirely rational. So I can now entertain a, quote, irrational practice, irrational being that we don't necessarily know why it works, and we think it works, but we're not sure, but I'm willing to play with that. At the same time, having a rational side that isn't going to, like, beat me over the head for potentially, maybe you're wasting time or something like that, and just to accept that, hey, I'm rational and irrational at the same time. And for me, that set me free to just, hey, I'm going to experiment, I'm going to see what works. And if I don't know why it works, I can make up a story. It's, you know, leprechauns and unicorn powered. I, whatever the story is, maybe it's actually based in mitochondrial biology Correct. or you know, quantum a... wormholes. We just don't know. And we can tell ourselves a story to make ourselves feel safe and telling the story is what science is and making the story more accurate of reality. But to be able to accept that, like, I'm, I'm going to do this practice that seems completely crazy. Uh, but if it works, then it wasn't crazy. If it doesn't work, it's just an experiment. Right. And, and that was a really tough step for me. And a lot of the hardcore skeptics out there have reached the point where uh, if I don't know how it works or I don't have some arbitrary definition for proving that it works, I'm not going to try it. What's your advice to people who are in that that very cognitive, uh, you know, hyper rational mindset? Uh, be, be a scientist. Okay. Be a scientist, which means. Create a thesis for yourself and test it. Yes. Uh, I, am, I am predominantly a curious mind. I wouldn't even call myself uh, in any way religious. Yeah. Uh, I am. I'm, I'm spiritual, but due to discovery, mm -hmm. you know, I have a curious mind, and I, I like to uh, ask myself questions, and and then see what answers I find. And I think everybody deserves that uh, intellectual freedom to be able to ask themselves questions they find interesting and to to create thesis or or look at thesis that maybe others have and test them. And I, I think that is a, a real path of knowledge as the Greeks would have lived it, right? A, a inquiry, you know? And I think that is the, the permission we need to give ourselves again after we're recovering from the educational system of the industrial age. Right. That we have the permission for pursuing our thirst for knowledge and that, that we can put ideas, uh, theories, models uh, to the test with, without having to blindly adopt them just in order to fit into a, a role, a position or a path. So, so one side is you know, blind adoption doesn't make sense and the other flip side of that coin is you know, that that can't be, therefore it isn't. Uh, which is the skeptic's sort of mantra. Like if someone reports something, rather than saying it's impossible, determine whether it really happened. And if so, you found an outlier that now says maybe there's more to the model. And for me, that's that's wakened me up uh, like spiritual and emotionally to things I didn't know about, but also even nutritionally in some of the other areas where I work, where like, okay, if there's one study that shows cows can get fat on 30% less calories, 
and they use it to make millions more dollars in the ranching industry, I know there's something more than a calorie that matters and yes. I'm going to explore that. Uh, but it, it's it's very natural for us to reject that. Well, that fact can't be true uh, because it violates my model. And if I yes. violate my model, I won't be safe. And and by practicing the presence and, and awareness and the things that you do in your leadership training and in your meditation training, I think it becomes safer to uh, to go down that path and say, all right, I'm, I'm just going to see what works. Yes, yes, and and it becomes. Uh, sometimes we say, you know, there, there's a there's a, a fear of the unknown or the, mm-hmm. the unfamiliar, and it's and as a leader, it is so important for us. There's so much so much uncertainty if we're really living at the cutting edge of reality, at the mm-hmm. cutting edge of time, at the cutting edge of movements. There is so much uncertainty, and and leaders have to be able to make decisions with incomplete information all the time. Oh yeah. And, and so they need a skill set that, that ca- they can draw on in that kind of an environment. And, and so curiosity, willingness to learn, willingness to be, to stay in touch with the inner resources, because the outer resources are still coming. They are still manifest. Right. And I think that is, that is a, a core skill. And the beautiful thing is, is we see more and more CEOs, uh, business owners, entrepreneurs showing up with that skill. Yeah. And I, I call it this, uh, the, the new archetype really of an awakened entrepreneur, right? And I, I could count you among them. I think people who show uh, significant accomplishment and mastery in business, but are operating from a spiritual awareness. I, I don't think it's possible to have that level of business success and be happy at the same time until you've done that. Because <laughs> I made $6 million when I was a miserable 26-year-old, lost it when I was 28, right? But it, it's it's about feeling good every day. Uh, and then the success comes with that. So I, I'm with you on that front. You're doing something really interesting uh, this year that I would love to join on, but I probably won't just because it takes a month. You are spending a month leading a group of people on a circle around the globe, going to a bunch of places, including Mount Kailash, which is where a remote part of Western Tibet, where I first had yak butter tea that was the inspiration for Bulletproof Coffee, as well as one of the holiest mountains in, in history. Tell me a little bit about why you're going to these seven different uh, spiritual locations around the planet and, and what you're doing there, because it's, it's fascinating. I will. I also want to tell you, if you want me to take something, for you as a gratitude gift to the Kailash? Oh, let yes. me know. Okay. Because I, I just saw that that might be a really a nice thing, uh, an offering. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I thank you for that. What a great idea. Yes. Uh, so this particular uh, trip, it's called the Awakened World Global Pilgrimage, and it takes place from May 11th, 2018 to June 11th, 2018. It goes around the earth one time, it does a circumambulation. But more than that, it's an ascending journey where we visit uh, powerful places in the, on the globe that correspond to the frequency of the different chakras or energy centers in the human body. We'll travel from Los Angeles to uh, Eastern Africa, uh, Tanzania, to the Ngorogoro Crater in the Serengeti, uh, then to Egypt, uh, to Jerusalem, to Varanasi, to... Um, northern China, the Wutaishan area, and then to Lhasa, and then uh, Mount Kailash, which represent the uh, seven different uh, energy centers or chakras that exist in the human body that are also represented in their, uh, in, in, in their frequency on the globe, on our planet. So this journey allows people to understand 
on a deeper level their own humanity. And the purpose of the trip is to awaken more unified consciousness in the world. There's a lot of division at the moment in our world, a lot of separation along ideological, uh, artificially drawn lines and, and borders. And the, the pilgrimage is really about acknowledging that uh, awakening is a universal value. It is not limited by, by ethnicity, uh, gender, cultural origin, none of that. And, and so it's a, a trip of 30 days of uh, pilgrimage around the globe through the seven, seven energy centers of the planet to help people awaken. Um, it has never been done. Uh, in the history of the world has never been a, a public pilgrimage that actually honored the entire earth as the sacred place. Uh, and uh, it will take 30 days to do it uh, effectively. Um, it's organized by a great tour company that also organizes uh, trips for Stanford and UCLA. And I've been working with them together. This is the third uh, pilgrimage that I lead internationally. Wow. And it's going to be fantastic. I would love to have a month of time to go to go join and do that because those are some just amazing places and to go there and look at them from a, a spiritual perspective uh, and to experience that with a group of people doing the same thing, talk about forming community. What a what a cool thing. Yeah, being a CEO and a podcaster and author, <laughs> kind of figure out to work a month of time off into that. But. Maybe we lead in 2020 or 2019, <laughs> we lead one just for CEOs, you know, and we'll, you we'll kind of work around. Every, you can all be on our cell phones all the time right. and cancel out the spirituality. There we have a go. free day every fourth day. There's <laughs> that, an executive that might, day. You know? That might actually work, something like that, where you're like, just got to check in. Well, uh, what a what a fascinating thing to do. And uh, I, I wish that... Uh, earlier in life, I'd had the opportunity to do that, and I still may. Uh, but this is something that I didn't do in my early 20s, which was just to travel and, and see things and to be able to stack all that up in, in a month. What a what a cool thing. Well, Dave, you're making a, a big difference in the world, you know, and uh, I have a lot of millennials that I work with as well who are really inspired by what your team at Bulletproof is doing. Oh, thank you. And so... Uh, yeah, let me know. You know, I, I have a certain expertise that, that also uh, was mined over uh, uh, quite, took time to develop. And so I'm, I know there will be opportunities for us to create things. Beautiful. Now, Dawa, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are the three most important pieces of advice you have for me? What would you offer them? I would say, first of all, uh, you, you need mentors. The, the human mind and the human body uh, learns so much faster from modeling success than it does from recreating it oh, out yeah. of thin air. <laughs> yeah. uh, second would be uh, whenever you are learning something new, the sign of that is, is that you, you feel your own limitation. You feel a sense of intellectual stupidity. You feel a sense of uh, personal inadequacy. You feel a sense of uh, even your own motor skills and dexterity. And, and so uh, don't reject that feeling. Every child knows it but doesn't reject it. But as an adult, we reject that feeling, which, main, which keeps us in a, a limited state. Right? Mm -hmm. where we're constantly trying to avoid feeling out of our element and out of our comfort zone. So that would be the next step. And then the third step really would be um, have a model for transformation. 
Yeah, there there is a there is a as as our friend Jack would say, success leaves clues, right? Which means there there are models by which people successfully transform their lives, their relationships, their income, their com- their businesses, their impact, their influence, everything. There are models by which that can be done, and I think uh, I would say uh, understand, uh, f- find a good model, find a good model. And once you do, the only thing in your way is mindset. Once you have a model that you can actually uh, work, uh, then work that model and take care of the mindset. I think with, with that, you can go a long way. Awesome. Thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. You've mentioned several different resources during the during the interview, and people can go to was it IAMT.org? IAMTA.org. Oh, IAMTA.org. Mm-hmm. Okay, and where else can people find your work? People can find my work at DirectArchinPhillips.com, uh, which is my website. Uh, they can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, uh, and Instagram. Um, we have a, a, a free very empowering meditation on the nature of the mind under dawatarchinphillips.com slash awakening presence that people can access for free just uh, by, by leaving their email if they want to stay in touch with okay. us. And then uh, there are a couple of uh, groups I have. There is an online course called the Mindful Leadership Breakthrough. Um, there is a uh, Mindful Leadership Tribe, which is our community of leaders in this space that are working on themselves on an ongoing basis, to developing solutions. Um, and then uh, they can also uh, visit my, my company's website at empowermentholdings.com. Those are simple ways by which people can get in touch. Excellent. If you like today's episode, uh, do yourself a favor and be more present, be more aware, be more alert. And you can also practice gratitude by going to bulletproof.com slash iTunes, which will take you right to the site where you can leave a review for the show to say it was worth your time. Thank you. A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.